This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to Lends Me Your Ears. I'm Stephen Cook, arts reporter for the Chronicle Herald here in Halifax. I'm Karsten Knox, a blogger at Flaw on the Iris at HalifaxBloggers.ca and the movie guru at CTV Morning Live. This is a movie podcast where we look at some current films and then examine some older titles that might be tangentially related. And hopefully you'll learn something about some films you might not have seen before. laugh when somebody falls down and hurts themselves? Well, then you might enjoy our chat about dark comedies on Lens Me Your Ears happening this week. So, Stephen, today we're talking about dark comedies in light of of the thrill of a screening of The Burbs. Yes. And, uh, you know, I had to go back and kind of see if I could get my head around the definition of dark comedies. Well, actually, I first plugged into the uh, ye old uh, uh, Google machine uh, black comedies, which I think, you know, I got a lot of actually African-American uh, comedies. <laughs> so that's an entirely other genre than what I sort of was thinking A lot of, of. Tyler Perry, huh? Yeah, yeah. You know, so, so when we're talking about comedies that are birthed out of, like, what would be traditionally thought of cynicism or or serious subjects that somehow get turned on their head and are are made to seem funny or light. Yeah, it's a strain of humor that is really uh, a 20th century type of humor. I mean, there are examples of it going back even further. If you look at, like, Jonathan Swift, the satirist, uh, had some pretty dark moments. Sure. You know, his, uh, his thoughts about, you know, eating children and things like that. You know, so so clearly there's a, a forerunner for that. But uh, but it seemed to really blossom in the uh, kind of insanity of world events uh, in the uh, in, in, in the 20th century. You know, things like the, the First World War and the surrealism uh, movement coming out of that. And, and you start to see a dark vein running through uh, silent comedy, especially Buster Keaton had kind of a morbid sense of humor. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, it, that uh, pops up mostly in his short films. Uh, there's, there's a scene that ends with the, his tombstone and his his uh, pork pie hat sitting on top of his tombstone at the end of the film and that kind of thing. Um, and each decade seems to, to draw from that in some way in regards to what's going on around them, be it consumer culture in the 50s or the Vietnam and the protest era in the 60s and uh, the, the Nixon years in the 70s. It all seems to inspire uh, this kind of Humor with a bit of bite to it, with a bit yeah. of edge. That, you yeah, know, mordant humor and anything. I mean, if if you if anything like death or dying or torture, if any of that seems funny, you know, there's there are ways to approach that material that is genuinely funny. And, and of course, I think partly it's it's an effort to to maybe you know poke a little bit at at predisposed people who are a little self-satisfied. Certainly the chance, I'm sure some of these filmmakers are thinking to themselves, oh, I'm going to totally upset, you know, and offend just the right people by by pursuing this work. And I, I can see it certainly in, in, in movies from the 40s like Arsenic and Old Lace, and I can see it in some of the Ealing comedies. The Brits have always been really good at, at dark satire, Kind Hearts and Cornets and uh, The Lady Killers for sure. You know, those are are movies that I I I've seen that kind of darkness, and I wouldn't necessarily say I'm a huge fan, but but I can I can respect that sort of vein of of humor, and I see it in in French movies, Delicatessen and Man Bites Dog in the early '90s. Certainly, even in something like Fight Club, could be considered a a dark comedy. Oh sure, there's definitely veins of it running throughout uh, all these uh, all these cultures. You know, and the Irish are particularly fond of of dark comedy. Um, you know, from uh, James Joyce certainly in, indulged in it, and so did uh, 
So did um, Spike Milligan, who, of course, uh, right. brought that character into The Goon Show and his uh, novels and his TV shows. And, uh, you know, he could get pretty dark. I mean, he talks about it in his... Uh, he he went through the Second World War and saw some of his friends blown to bits. And uh, you realize that kind of informs the sort of weird and, and dark and twisted tone of uh, the stuff that he did with The Goons in his, own, in his own plays and books and things. It's a shame it didn't translate to movies more often. He made a, a satire called The Bed-Sitting Room about London and England after the uh, after the uh, the apocalypse and, and it's basically set in a post-apocalyptic s- society directed by Richard Lester who made the, the Beatles movies. Oh, and, sure, yeah. And uh, The Knack and, and he just, they decided to make this film about society uh, where people are starting to mutate. There's a man who's turning into a, a chest of drawers. Uh, <laughs> you know, all this kind of thing and, and Spike shows up as as, a, as kind of a post-nuclear postman, I guess. Um, you know, so it's, it's definitely there, but it, it more came out in dribs and drabs due to his own uh, problems and inabilities to get his vision on the screen. But, uh, but yeah, it seems like every society has that, that thread of comedians who like to explore kind of the darker side of things. Uh, Steve Martin likes to indulge in it from time to time yeah. as well. And Mel, certainly Mel Brooks has combined that with a broad slapstick and spoofy humor that incorporates that that darker sense. You see it in films like Blazing Saddles and High Anxiety and so on and sure. so on. Sure. Yeah, and I mean, if we want to talk about war, I guess probably the best-known dark comedy, if... if I, I don't, I don't, it has a lot more going on than just that, but but Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb from 64, Stanley Kubrick had that that quality of, of, of humor in a lot of his work going through Clockwork Orange and, and even to some degree uh, The Shining. But, uh, but, you know, Dr. Strangelove, you want to make a comedy about nuclear war that ends with with, you know, the entire world blowing up. I don't think it's... I, 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 you know, anyone listening to this podcast should expect a certain amount of spoilers, but seriously, if we're not talking about a movie from 1964, especially one like that, then, then you know, I, I think I'm pretty free to admit, to, to, to tell what happens in the end. Oh, for sure. <laughs> and, and that, that and Dr. Strangelove is a, is a key point. I mean, that there hadn't been a film like that, really, up to that point. No. To, to, to kind of take that, that broad look at, at politics and the military and, and our our kind of blasé attitude about impending nuclear destruction. I mean, people in that age were living in the whole duck and cover era, you know, it was like, you know, get under your desk when you see the nuclear flash sure. and that kind of thing. And, you know, but to, to see it as being as absurd as it was, it, you know, it took uh, Kubrick and filming in England, you know, to, to, to kind of put it all in perspective, um, you know, and, and tying it into consumer culture, like when, you know, the whole, the fate of the world could hinge on getting a quarter from a Coca-Cola machine. <laughs> and, uh, one of the soldiers, uh, you know, I think it's Keenan Wynn, you know, says, well, you, know, you have to take that up with the Coca-Cola company. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, yeah. we need a quarter to call headquarters and let them know what's happening kind of thing. And uh, it, it it was, it, I think it marked kind of a new phase of comedy. Um, you know, Terry Southern, as far as I know, that was his first big screenplay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and he went on to write many other kind of dark comedies of, of similar ilk after that. So. Yeah, including one that landmark. we're going we're to talk about. That's true. About. Yeah, The Loved One. The Loved One, yeah. Um, but I also, uh, funny enough, when I was in Toronto uh, last winter, I went to the TIFF, the light box, and I saw the Kubrick exhibit. And, oh, nice. uh, and they showed, they had, they had photographs from the set of Dr. Strangelove, the scene in which that got cut from the final film, where they have this, this uh, pie in the face 
fight yeah. in the war room. Uh, I'm assuming that pies were brought out as part of the, because I know there's a scene where they're at the sort of lunch table eating. Yeah, I, I think you pies. can vaguely see them in the background in the mo- finished movie right. where the, you see someone wheel in a tray full of pies or yeah. something like that. Yeah, but the, the, yeah, the cream pie fight. But I'm wondering whether, I'm, I think in retrospect, although the photos were terrific to see everyone covered in like in whipped cream uh, uh, or shaving cream or whatever it was that they used, but uh, but it would have changed the tone of the film a lot oh, if yeah. they had kept that in there. No, that was a wise decision to, to take that out, I think. I mean, it's it'd be cool to see the footage after all these years. But, yes. you know, we know how Kubrick has things on lockdown. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, but it, yeah, it's more of a Blake Edwards kind of thing. And he would actually, in yeah. The Great Race, which came out not long after that, you know, would do exactly that, have a giant fight in a bakery yeah. or whatever. And it stops, it just isn't quite as dark yeah. when you've got a, a big pie fight. Uh, you know, and, and it's funny, the war the war dark satires continued into the 70s with MASH, Robert Altman's great film, which a lot of people probably at this day and age probably know as well from the, from the sitcom that it spawned. But the the movie is, is quite bleak. Uh, and then and Catch-22 of the same year, Mike Nichols from the Joseph Heller novel. You know, both of those talk about the absurdity of war and the ridiculousness of it in, in, in pretty bloody terms while having a lot of laughs at the expense of, of people in charge. It's, it's funny to look back at MASH and Catch-22. Catch-22 was supposed to be the big hit. It was a Paramount picture. It was directed by Mike Nichols, who was just coming off of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, uh, which was a big hit. And um, a graduate. And the graduate, of sure. course. Um, MASH was by this guy that most people hadn't heard of, his Robert Altman character. It was based on this kind of trashy novel about doctors during the Korean War. You, you know, it was kind of like a dime novel that was fairly full of kind of frat style humor and all that kind of thing. And, and MASH, you know, but uh, MASH is the one that looks kind of dated now, even though it's it's like a it's like a Vietnam era comedy commenting on the Vietnam era, but setting it in Korea just so people don't sure. think it's about Vietnam. Anyway, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's pretty obvious who they're, what they're talking about. Um, Bo- and, both movies have amazing casts. And, oh, incredible cast. Yeah. Uh, MASH, I think, is still good. I think it's still I, funny. I think it is too. It's, uh, it feels more like a product of its time than Catch-22 does, even though it's set in the Second World War. Uh, for some reason, Catch-22 feels a lot more contemporary. Uh, yeah, but I, 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 I found Catch-22 a little bit of a... Of, there's, there's a bit of an episodic kind of... St- kind of nature to it. I felt that was part of the novel too. Though. It sure is, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but it is it's it's great and Alan Arkin, you know, hardly was better. I mean, than than when he was in Isosarian in that film. Uh yeah, and then and then you know, in times there haven't been quite as many uh, uh these kind of provocative comedies, war comedies. You know, Wag the Dog, Three Kings maybe qualifies David O. Russell's film, but you don't you don't see it done as much as as it that was kind of weirdly the the, you know, the Vietnam era was kind of the golden age of, of these kinds of movies. Yeah, well, Catch-22 was certainly reflecting on that, again, like MASH set in a different war. But, uh, you know, having having it embedded in this this conflict that, that doesn't look like it's going to end and then bringing in this whole idea of American uh, consumerism with uh, Milo, the, 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 the mess hall chief who turns his uh, desire to get better food for the men into this global... <laughs> uh, this, global conglomerate where he even lets the Germans bomb the base uh, to, you know, to make it so they'll buy the cotton that he can't dump on the market. Um, and it, not many movies can actually introduce, and of course it was in the book too, but, you know, introduce this term into the common parlance. The catch 22 is like a situation you, you can't 
get yourself out of yes. just because of, of a weird rules that you see a lot of computers where a program kind of seizes up because one thing conflicts with another. But Catch-22 basically established that where he wants to stop flying missions and he can stop flying missions if they can prove that he's crazy. But if he says he doesn't want to fly missions, that means he's not crazy. That's right. And he has to fly more missions. So that's the catch. Um, and there's a whole bunch of other examples through the, through the story. There's other ones as well. Yeah. But, uh, you know, and that just became a universal term for, you know, weird things in contracts and job posts and, and all kinds of things where you find yourself in a situation that for, for, you know, if you're going by the rules, you just can't extricate yourself from. And, and that sort of became like why America couldn't get out of Vietnam for the longest time. Yeah. And I think that's wonderful. I think, you know, it, it speaks to the, the importance of these genres of these ways of looking at these sort of, you know, maybe, maybe at the surface seems cynical, but the fact of the matter is they do represent a part of culture and, and a story like this has applications through our life even now. So, so I think, I think it's great. I'm glad we're, I'm glad we're taking a crack at this, uh, at this genre. Definitely. Yeah. And I, and I think like, you know, being generations that have been through war definitely, uh, have that gallows humor, uh, embedded in their psyche, I guess. <laughs> And now here we have Stephen Cook at the screening of The Burbs, Joe Dante's cult comedy at Thrillama on July 22nd here in Halifax. Good morning. Show of hands, who has not seen this film before? Wow. That's a lot of people. Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a pretty neat film. I saw it when it came out back in 89 because I'm old. And uh, it's, uh, it's an interesting film for both the director, Joe Dante, who, of course, Made Gremlins, uh, one of the best werewolf pictures ever, The Howling, uh, and went on to do uh, Looney Tunes back in action. Um, uh, Tom Hanks, of course, is the star. He's uh, an obscure indie film actor that you may not be familiar with, but um, at the time that he made uh, The Burbs, uh, Tom Hanks uh, his, was probably best known for Bosom Buddies, uh, his uh, 80s sitcom with the great Peter Scolari. He's been in kind of a series of fairly lackluster comedies at that point, or he'd been in a string of them, um, The Money Pit, um, Volunteers, John Candy, which probably deserves a relook. Um, but at any rate, after Splash, which was his real big, uh, first real big successful movie, Tom Hanks kind of went into a bit of a slump. So he made this film, which didn't help him. So we're seeing Tom Hanks in kind of a weird phase of his career. He's, he's not the, the beloved everyman that we think of uh, today. Um, it's also his first time playing dad, which is kind of weird to think about. Uh, and he was kind of worried that that meant he was going to be seen as being getting long, long in the tooth and being like an older guy and not funny anymore. So he had some trepidation about playing a dad uh, in this movie. Thankfully, the, the role of his son is, is not very crucial to the film, so the whole parenthood thing kind of gets shunted off to the side in this film. Uh, Joe Dante, um, of course, had already had a success uh, with uh, Gremlins, uh, Gremlins, the first Gremlins had come out, um, and The Howling, of course, had kind of established him as a major Hollywood director. Uh, but then he made uh, a couple of films that are are well liked, but not uh, you know weren't terribly received at well received at the time. Uh, Explorers, which is a wonderful film about a bunch of kids who make a, a rocket ship uh, with some guidance from some aliens. Uh, and then uh, then he made um, Inner Space, in which Randy Quaid uh, gets shrunk down and injected into Martin Dennis Short. Quaid. Pardon? Dennis Quaid. Dennis Quaid, sorry. It would have been more interesting with Randy. <laughs> but uh, he gets injected into Martin Shorts and hilarity ensues. Uh, wonderful film, if you haven't uh, seen it, I recommend checking that one out. So the Burbs came along at a weird time. They were both uh, star and director needed a hit. 
this film would not be that, but um, you know, it was uh, it wasn't an expensive film to make. It was all like I say, it was all done on uh, one particular part of the Universal backlot for the most part. Um, it was done in the middle of a writer's strike. Um, one of the other reasons they got to make it was because uh, Hollywood had kind of shut down for the summer because there was a writer's strike on. And uh, in this case, they had a script. It was originally called Bay Window. It was supposed to be a comedy spoof of Hitchcock's Rear Window. So it was basically Rear Window reset in the suburbs. They called it Bay Window, which is a bit on the nose, really. And uh, Joe Dante took the script and they, they, you know, they made it a little tighter and made it a little funnier. Um, and one of the ways they got around uh, the whole writer strike thing was um, the uh, the guy who's credited with writing the script, or at least uh, the, the initial screenplay, is a guy named Dana Olson, who's also an actor. So that way, he could be on the set as an actor and sort of do a little under the table <coughs> script revisions as need be. So um, I mean, John Dante used to work for Roger Corman, and uh, he learned a trick or two uh, in those days, and uh, you know, uses them and still uses them in his career today. He's still making films, of course. And uh, I'll learn a few of the low-budget tricks from Roger Corman on how to squeeze every dime you can out of the budget. Um, a few other things to note. Great cast. I mean, the reason why I love this film is because it has such a great supporting cast. Um, I don't think the whole of the film is equal to the sum of the parts. I, I think, uh, I, think uh, I like it for its bits and pieces more than the way it kind of all hangs together. But uh, there's enough from start to finish to, to, to make me say it's a film that I really enjoy every time I see it. Um, the Klopeks, the evil neighbors uh, across the street, or next door rather, um, you know, they're like these crazy European scientist types who are doing something sinister in the basement. Great casting there. We got um, Henry Gibson is kind of Dr. Klopek. He's kind of the head of that family. Robert Altman used him quite a bit. He's in uh, The Long Goodbye. He's in Nashville. Um, he's great in those films. Uh, and he got a start really on laughing. He was actually a comedian. He's apparently a very nice, gentle guy. Everyone loved him, but he seemed to have a knack for playing villains, uh, just because there was something weirdly sinister about his kind of very round face, I guess. Um, and uh, you know, he started out, you know, as with a comedy actor, he'd read these strange little poems that he'd written. I actually have an LP at home of poems by Henry Gibson before, uh, even before laughing, he was kind of known for these odd little rhymes. And uh, but he, you know, he parlayed that into a film career after laughing went off the air, and he shows up all the time in a lot of great little minor roles. Brother Theodore, uh, who plays his, I guess his brother, uh, equally sinister. In fact, he was uh, he was kind of like a performer in New York City in the 50s, 60s, and into the 80s and beyond. Um, he was kind of a comedian, but not really. He, would, he was more of a raconteur. He was called the genius of the sinister. That was kind of how he built himself, uh, telling these very strange tales. Uh, it turns out he had a very weird life. He was a Holocaust survivor which seems really weird in the context of this particular film. Uh, and, uh, you know, was apparently, again, like Gibson, a sweet-natured, friendly, generous guy offstage, but he had this sort of surly persona that he played to the hill, mostly on David Letterman. Most people know him from his frequent appearances on David Letterman. I suspect that he probably lived somewhere near NBC and, or CBS, and, you know, they'd call him up whenever they had a guest bail on him. They'd just get Brother Theodore to come on and, and fill 10 minutes of time, which he did very well every time. And if you go on YouTube, you'll find uh, lots of clips of him um, on there. So I don't want to take up a whole lot more time. Uh, enjoy the film. Uh, notice that things get a little weird towards the end because they reshot the ending. Uh, there's three different endings for this film, one of which you can find on YouTube. There's an alternate ending. Uh, the one that they used is actually better. It's one of those rare cases where the one, the second ending they shot is actually the better one. The one you see on YouTube, you can see why it didn't work. 
And uh, there's also some outtakes and stuff like that. The soundtrack is full of fun cues by like Eddie Morricone and Jerry Goldsmith's theme from Patton shows up whenever you see Bruce Dern as the crazed uh, Vietnam vet. Um, see if you can spot the, there's a box of gremlin cereal that shows up at one scene. Um, and uh, towards the end, uh, you'll see you'll see some uh, some other character actors show up late in the film. Ron Howard's dad, Ron Howard, uh, his company Imagine produced this film, and Ron Howard's dad shows up as a detective, and uh, you can really see the resemblance. Um, and uh, that's about it. The, I guess the, the only other thing is um, Carrie Fisher is in the film as well. I don't want to give her a short shrift. Uh, I mean, she doesn't. She's not really known for a ton of roles following Star Wars. Uh, Postcards from the Edge is one of them, I guess. Uh, sort of based on her own life, in a way. And, um, uh, oh no, she's not in that, she just wrote it, sorry. Um, but, you know, we don't get a lot of good Terry Fisher roles. Uh, you know, she kind of got fed up with the acting thing and went more into writing. But, um, but she and Hanks are really good here together. Like, they have a really good rapport. And according to Joe Dante, I watched a, a, chat, a chat he gave about the film, and he said a lot of their stuff is improvised. The scene where they're watching Jeopardy and writing glues down or something like that, is, uh, is pretty much improv, and a lot of their scenes are kind of off-the-cuff, off-script kind of uh, thing. So keep an eye out for that and see if you can tell which ones are scripted and which ones aren't. And uh, enjoy the film. A lot of dark humor, a lot of obvious 80s humor, mostly through Corey Feldman. Um, and uh, enjoy, uh, I'm trying to think, there's lots of other little trivia associated with the film. I, I don't want to besiege you with it, but um, hope you like it. Hope you like its, uh, its 80s-ness and, and uh, some of its references. And... Uh, Hopefully we'll see you next month. Thanks. So that was my intro to The Burbs at the at the Nova Scotia Museum of Natural History here in Halifax. And always fun to revisit that film. It's, a, it's not the sort of film I would watch once a year, but certainly every few years, maybe every five years or every decade or so. It's a fun movie to go back and, and, and rewatch. But I understand you weren't as sold on this being a classic comedy as I was. No, I can understand the cult interest in it because in some ways it's it's this collection of of really of 80s cinema tropes that if you if you're a fan of American movies of the 80s it's got almost all of them the sort of suburban milieu Tom Hanks you know the, this this interesting uh, great cast I mean Bruce Dern is is awesome and Corey Feldman who who you know <laughs> he, he was basically a staple was working all the time at that point but but yeah I just felt like this sort of group of suburban white guys, you know, led by tanks who's taking this staycation before that was ever a word. And then they get <laughs> they get into a froth about the new neighbors who are sort of like a German Adams family and the, and the weird stuff that's going on in their basement. I felt like the movie was was kind of a, a, a like a movie version of the Tom Waits song. What's he building in there where <laughs> where the people where the guy singing the song is much scarier than whatever could be going on inside that house. And I felt sort of like that's what the movie was really about. It was about paranoia, even though uh, they are proved right, you know, in the end. Yeah, the, the the closest modern antecedent I can think of is that movie The Watch with Ben Stiller okay. and Richard Iotti, and, and uh, I can't remember who else was in it at this point, but it, was, it wasn't it was a great comedy by any stretch. Uh had so much promise and just didn't really pay off on it. But it's, instead, in that case, it's Aliens. In the in the neighborhood, and there there's security guards who suspect there's an alien under, invasion underway. But it, it uses the same kind of suburban and strip mall milieu. Um, of course, the burbs, of course, combined strictly to the back lot of Universal uh, Pictures for the, right. pretty pretty much for the most part. Um, but uh, but it is a it is a very 80s film. It does have that that look and that stylistic feel of that time period. Um, I suspect if you took out the Corey Feldman scenes, it would probably seem a little less 80s. <laughs> yeah, probably. Because, you know, like, uh, 
I mean, Rick DeCommon and Tom Hanks uh, are pretty average, normal-looking Joes. Uh, you know, I feel like Rick DeCommon would be Edward Platt, you know, later if it had been filmed later, maybe. Um, oh, or Oliver Platt? Or Oliver Platt, yes, Sure, exactly. sure, I know what you mean, yeah. And, um, and so on. So, you know, I, it's... But this, it's it's... 80s dialed down with the exception, but Corey Feldman's mullet and his <laughs> terrible leather jacket and some of his friends kind of neon clothes kind of do drag it cricking and screaming into that, uh, into that period. But, uh, you know, that, but everybody else plays it sort of straight for the most part. I suppose part. that's true, but I just, I'm looking at the hair and the makeup and all the lighting mm-hmm. and the, and the milieu yeah. that's, that, that Spielberg established sort of in his movies. And then it just kept getting, showing up in other movies, this, this sort of white bread, uh, America, uh, very much lives in, in this, in this movie. I, I discovered in my research, and this is a sad note that Rick Ducommon actually died about a month ago. Yeah, I know. It was He's weird. I just realized that. Canadian comedian and actor. Uh, so, so this is, could be a, be a you know, shout out to him and, and, and years of good work. Certainly yeah, a pretty solid Joe, character. Actor. Joe Dante uh, used him in a number of films. I, I recognized him because I watched Joe Dante's uh, Gremlins to the new batch and <laughs> he's in that as well. Um, so yeah, that, that again, I, I wondered whether that qualified as a dark comedy because it's so lively and full of like, uh, of, of just enthusiasm that that film is, is just crazy fun, but it, it's definitely a satire of all sorts of like modern eighties lifestyle stuff from, from movies to, to, uh, uh, you know, uh, consumerism to to any any like I, I was I was kind of hard it was hard for me to keep up with with all the stuff that was going on in Gremlins 2 revisiting it certainly recognize that John Glover playing Clamp is kind of a Trump Ted Turner media yeah. baron developer amalgam you know <laughs> they're definitely throwing a lot of stuff at the wall on Gremlins 2 like it's almost like uh, you know Warner Brothers wanted another wholesome small town monster movie a la the first one and and you know, Joe Dante thought, well, this is my chance to really, you know, get all my id on the screen. In yes. This film. And, <laughs> and, you know, even even to the point where we have Leonard Malton show up to review the movie midway through. Midway through and then and the film actually gets burned on the screen like, you know, Tulane Blacktop or something. Because yeah, they, the gremlins get into the, the projection booth, supposedly. Yeah, and then it takes Hulk Hogan to... Uh, to calm to everything down. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, the, I mean, that's, that's completely a cartoon... Uh, cartoon joke uh, out of a Tex Avery movie. Right. Um, you know, and, and, you know, Dante talks, I mean, you, you look at his segment of the Twilight Zone movie, you know, clearly cartoons are a big part of what he does. He did that Looney Tunes movie yes. as well, just to, like they wanted to make up for Space Jam and they almost did, but not quite. But, yeah. uh, you know, and he says, even in the Burbs, you know, Tom Hanks has a dream sequence that's part uh, Looney Tune, part, uh, you know, psychotic suburban breakdown. Um but uh, but Gremlins too is just come you know just like there's no holds barred in that film at all and and uh, and yeah it does have that you know that the 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 idea that we're becoming trod under the foot of these multimedia conglomerates it was kind of ahead of the curve in, in that sense it's true I, I I absolutely right and I given you know it's I would I would recommend it to people who are suffering through the the Trump as presidential candidate uh, situation that's going on right now. Uh, It would be worth going back to watch because it's just as valid now as it was uh, 25 years ago. I I would also say that one thing that makes it stand out in a way that maybe I can't think of another example of this is how Dante 
makes fun of the predecessor. Like, he directed the the previous film, Gremlins, which is still considered one of the charming sort of Christmas movie slash adventure, kids' family adventures of the uh, of the 80s. But he totally steps on it with his sequel. He <laughs> makes fun of, of sequences from the first one. You know, he, he um, Phoebe Cates' whole speech about, which was quite tragic in the first movie, lent this sort of yeah. serious darkness to the fact that, that I think was it her father died as playing, trying to pretend to be Santa Claus, coming down the chimney at Christmas, and it's, that's why she has this this problem with Santa Claus. Uh, that is, uh, you know, is, is referenced in this in a, in a very tongue-in-cheek sort of way. Uh, certainly, the, the cute little critter, the Ma- Gizmo the Mogwai, is, is kind of made fun of in this movie, whereas in the first movie, they definitely played up his cuteness. In this one, you know, they, they, they dress him up and pretend that he's Rambo. <laughs> it, you know, it gets pretty extreme with the parodies and, and stuff like that. Like, it almost feels like like more of a sequel to Amazon Women on the Moon or Kentucky Fried Movie, given how segmented it is. I guess it should be noted that Chris Chris Columbus, who wrote the first Gremlins, is not involved in this one. Right. Um, so it, it doesn't have that kind of weird Capra-esque kind of feel yes. that, that that was kind of being subverted in the first film. And I, you know, So you can call the, the first one a dark comedy, too, the mm. way they're kind of getting at some of those Hollywood small-town comedy conventions. Yeah. Um, yeah. This one's set in a, in a city in a skyscraper, yeah. largely. Uh, the writer of this one is a guy named Charlie Haas, who uh, also uh, wrote Matinee, so obviously a guy that Dante was familiar with. And I, I believe he also wrote... Uh, the uh, the S.E. Hinton movie Tex, he wrote the screenplay okay. for that as well. So I guess he had a thing for young characters anyway, but uh, but uh, definitely inspired to run wild here. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I, I want to go back and and go back to the 70s because part of my my preparation, preparation for the podcast was to watch a movie that I'm a little embarrassed to admit I'd never seen, which was Harold and Maude from 1971, which I know has has a huge fan base through the years, even though it wasn't much of a success, I guess, at the time. The Hal Ashby movie written by uh, Colin Higgins. And it is a real charmer, but it is genuinely, it's about characters obsessed with death. It's a comedy and a romance about characters obsessed with death and uh, a young man who becomes quite intimate with with a woman approaching 80 and how they look at life in different ways. Uh, and, and I watching it, I was, uh, I was it really it occurred to me how much Wes Anderson must love this movie because the kind of place where Wes Anderson, especially when he started with Rushmore and the Royal Tenenbaums feel very indebted to Harold and Maude. And I, Wes Anderson certainly has some melancholy in his humor as well, though Harold and Maude, the, you know, Harold's ability to, to set up these fake suicides is it must have must have freaked people out when they first saw it. Yeah, I, I think this movie uh, really struck a nerve when it came out. I mean, the, the the love story aspect of it was was very fresh at the time, and but also this obsession with faking suicides and mm-hmm. going to funerals and that kind of thing was also also pretty fresh too. Like, uh, you know, I mean, death and and weird sex are kind of like the two strongest uh, uh, kind of strains in black humor, and, sure. and uh, you know, so this film kind of tackles them both head on at the same time and um it's it's a film that keeps getting rediscovered by new generations too i find that young viewers really cotton on to this film for any number of reasons the the, the herald character is is uh you know 
so unique, it's hard not to feel drawn to him. <laughs> yeah, and Bud Cord is great in this. He's terrific in this. Yeah. Um, and Ruth Gordon, of course. Ruth Gordon, who I think, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think she kind of got her started start as a screenwriter. She was kind of a, a in the 50s, 40s and 50s, and then she became more of an actor. Is I think that's the case. Uh, she she was an actress on Broadway, but oh, got, okay. got more into into writing and, and stuff like that. And right. Then, um, you know, when she realized she wasn't going to be the ingenue <laughs> actress all the time. There's actually a film about her young years uh, becoming an actress and making her way up to her first big role on the Broadway stage or whatever. I think it's just called The Actress. And Spencer okay. Tr- Spencer Tracy plays her father, who's kind of usual Spencer Tracy gruff, but, but you know, kind-hearted at the core. And it's it's pretty touching stuff, but it's based on, on her life and, and, huh. and her relationship with a, a writer named Garson Kanan, I believe, who, uh, you know, was kind of like her inspiration and then the love of her life and, and then their relationship together. So, um, you know, she's definitely a, a lot more... Uh, complicated than the, the kind of the old lady roles she would get later on Harold and Maude and the Clint Eastwood yeah, well, uh, I certainly, orangutan movies. I certainly remember her from those those Eastwood movies. Uh, this is yeah, this is really something to see and 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 I felt I felt like and speaking of of other references that have been adopted by uh more more modern uh more recent directors, uh the funeral sightseeing stuff totally reminded me of Edward Norton and Helen Bonham Carter in uh, in Fight Club. You know, where they oh, visit sure. all these like these 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 support groups uh that definitely had that that kind of thing and, and i i would say that the only thing about the movie that hasn't quite aged as well is the constant cat stevens which <laughs> yes. you know i like cat stevens as much as the next guy but is like scene after scene after scene i don't know how many cat stevens songs they used in this movie but there's a lot of them yeah you got to be careful about how you use <laughs> the music <laughs> yeah. actually the burbs has the same problem because they keep using like this sort of la hair metal right there's a band called jet boy that is constantly being played by i'm assuming Corey feldman's character yeah yeah that really really it great nails it to the wall in terms yeah. of uh, the era that it was made in yeah you know sometimes that works uh mm-hmm. I, i'm not the greatest cat stevens fan but i find most of the songs they use in the movie fairly endearing it was i think that was kind of fresh for the time too using sure. pops as outside of like hard day's night where it's about a pop band right. or pop musician or maybe the graduate yeah, that's probably the film where it kind of started. Sure. In fact, it, it probably takes a, you know, I mean, you know, Harold is kind of just a weirder version of, of, of ben. <laughs> Dustin Hoffman's yeah. character in, in The Graduate, you know, just taking to a few more extremes. Well, speaking of, of teen teen characters, I uh, want to flash forward to Heathers, which when I was in college was, was one of the movies I watched more often, just kept coming back to it because it was so funny the whole the dialogue and the structure of it just killed me and uh it's it was directed by michael lehman and and written by daniel waters and and i think that heathers is is kind of the darkest teen movie that one of the darkest maybe outside of kids uh that i can think of and uh it it kind of killed the john hughes teen movies I, i seem to recall that after heathers there was this long stretch where they just hollywood wasn't making teen movies or high school movies and all of a sudden about 10 years later in the late 90s you got can't hardly wait and then the american pie movie started and maybe 10 things i hate about you Mm -hmm. i think i think that heathers was just so bleak 
and it it kind of revealed a certain inner darkness about high school <laughs> and maybe maybe it just kind of killed the genre but you know what a way to go because heather's is is a total delight winona ryder plays veronica sawyer who's interesting whose best friend growing up was betty finn a pair of iconic names if i've i've ever heard them uh who joins the hottest clique in westerberg high school uh the heathers three yes. girls named heathers who really run things and uh when she when when uh, veronica hooks up with jason dean played by christian slater they they start to they start to kill their classmates <laughs> Pretty grim. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. yet hilarious. And yet hilarious. <laughs> and, you know, it's funny because there's actually some controversy now over the ending because I think the original script had Veronica helping J.D. blow up the school. But uh, somewhere along the way, I think maybe the studio, they got involved and said they can't, she can't do that. And so it became about her trying to fight and save the school that she thought was worth saving. Uh, and may- maybe they did wuss out a little bit due to studio interference, but I, I still have to say I, I loved how it turned out. I think, I think it's, a, it's a classic yeah, I think it stands up pretty well. Uh, obviously, still kind of an '80s film. A Westerberg High reference makes me crack up. Just, mm-hmm. You know, it's obviously, yeah. you know, if they're replacements fans, then their hearts were clearly in the right place. Um, and uh, you know, there's just so many great iconic lines. You know, yeah, about it, most you know. of which would would uh, it's, a, it's a serious hard R-rated movie. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't. I mean, you know, there's a lot of excitement about this film. It's unfortunately fortunate, though. I think Daniel Waters went on to work with uh, with Tim Burton to some degree. Uh, unfortunately, Michael Lehman was also associated with uh, Hudson Hawk. Hudson Hawk, that's which right. Kind of. I mean, he he did some other stuff after yeah, that. Yeah, he's still working. Right. Those guys. The yeah, guys well, still he's working, he's so. heavily involved in TV. I think he worked on Dexter. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, more recently, House of Lies, which is a really interesting comedy series. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, nothing as iconic as, as Heather's ever again, really. Um, yeah, yeah, and it's funny. The film I think holds up better than some John Hughes movies. Not all of them, but some of them. It just feels more honest somehow. Yeah, and 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 I think, and it feels like like the it was part of this movement of films like The Burbs, this this kind of underbelly of suburbia thing that was happening in in comedies in the 80s i guess because maybe more people were moving to suburb like now like everybody's like you know moving into condos so maybe we need some dark condo uh movies yeah uh, <laughs> i guess enemies enemies sort of, like sort that. of that yeah but yeah. uh you know because of, besides the burbs and heathers come to mind there was um a movie called parents right with uh randy quaid mm-hmm. and uh, you know the these kids who suspect their parents are actually cannibals and um uh, you know, what's for dinner? Leftovers. What were they before they were leftovers? <laughs> More leftovers. You know, like, like the, you know, it's uh, that creeping paranoia again about your own parents. Sure. Um, there's one called Meet the Applegates. Oh, yes, I remember that. About a family that turns out to be like super intelligent cockroaches. Cockroaches, <laughs> yeah. We missed talking about that in our in our, our bug uh, movie podcast. Well, it works in this context. Yeah, totally. So, there you go. Um, you know, and, and, uh uh, Ed Begley Jr. I think was the, yeah. the father in that film, uh, and uh, you know so that and that had that kind of making fun of suburbia thing. Even the Coneheads movie, which you know not an entire success, but I I remember thinking it was going to be junk, and it actually uh-huh. turned out to be a little bit better than I expected. It was a little yeah. little darker and a little weirder than I thought. You know, after, after Wayne's World and stuff, I thought they were going to play it kind of safe, uh-huh. and uh, the Coneheads movie actually turned out to be kind of oddball you know in a good way yeah and yeah. uh now I'm, now the more i talk about it, the more i think i kind of want to go revisit that sure. at some point but sure and i i uh, i think that any any uh 
a discussion of of dark comedies would be incomplete without mentioning Bad Santa, which <laughs> well, which yes. you know, in talking about suburban uh, rituals of around Christmas, and I feel like Bad Santa. You know, directed by Terry Zweigoff and written by Glenn Ficarra and John Requa is is a milestone in offensive humor, and I think should be kind of required viewing every December along with It's a Wonderful Life and Miracle on 34th Street. It just as as Christmas gets more co opted and more consumerist in our society, it doesn't seem to be slowing down every year. You know, the the Christmas season of advertising gets earlier and earlier. You know, it recently broke through the Halloween. You know, uh, border and and started earlier in October. Uh, the more I feel like this uh, this movie is is more relevant. Uh, basically, the story of Billy Bob Thornton and uh, uh, Tony Cox playing they're professional thieves, and every Christmas they set up in a mall as a, as a Santa and his elf, and then rob the place blind on Christmas Eve. But at Willie becoming most Willie the Billy Bob Thornton character becoming more alcoholics and sex obsessed as he goes along, <laughs> it starts to interfere with. The ability to be a plausible Santa, and then in the the time of the movie, he's in Arizona and uh, at a mall there, and a mall manager uh, played by John Ritter, who's great in the movie, yes. gets starts getting suspicious of Willie and reports his behavior to the mall security guy played by Bernie Mac, and it's just you know bad bad stuff starts to happen, and and oh it is I I laugh so much at this movie, it is so rude and obnoxious, <laughs> but but yeah it is it. it Anyone who has a mixed feelings about their relationship with Christmas, it's a must see. Yeah, Zweigoff obviously picked up uh, some of that uh, some of that tone from hanging out with uh, Robert Crumb, mm-hmm. obviously for his documentary on Crumb. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's I mean, you can't get much darker than that. So, uh, and it's it's you know taking on Christmas directly in such a way is is pretty great because I mean, like prior to this, uh, mostly it was like you know. You, Taking a bad Santa, it was mostly straight up horror films: Christmas Evil, Silent right. Night, Deadly Night, Black Christmas, that sort of thing. Where it's just like a flat out horror slasher film or what have you. Um, you know, the, uh, the uh, Christmas Story has has a bit of bite to it, but it's mostly a light hearted family nostalgic thing. Yeah, with 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 a bit of nerve, you know, in some of the where, you know, things like beating up the bully and and that sort of thing, and sure. Santa being kind of obnoxious in that movie. So part of me wonders if the obnoxious Santa in a Christmas story made made somebody think, well, what if we took Santa a little further down? Yes, down that down lane. the tr- down the garden path. Sure, and, and uh, you know, so we wind up with this version, um, you know, and 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 it great take on an annoying little kid and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff mm-hmm. um you know the, the, there's certainly lots of films where they uh, lots of moments in this film where they just tweak things just that extra step further to to, to make it resonate with with the viewer and I, I just remember loving this film when it came out not really knowing what to expect when i went in it's because i wasn't the biggest billy bob fan i liked him in some things but he i think he'd been in a string of not great movies at this point so yeah it was a nice return to form for him too yeah for sure and uh i also want to mention just quickly super from 2010 now this is the james James Gunn film. James Gunn, who went on to wild success with Guardians of the Galaxy, and he had made like a sort of a monster movie some years before called Slither. But uh, but this is his very low budget satire of superheroes. So so you know if we recently talked about Ant Man and superheroes, we're kind of in a golden age of superhero movies right now. And and if this is kind of the antithesis of that, it imagines Rain Wilson as a heartbroken guy named Frank Darbo, who is kind of a breakdown when his wife, played by Liv Tyler, gets hooked hooked on drugs and leaves him for the local drug dealer, uh, play, played by Kevin Bacon. 
And uh, so so our hero here he decides he wants to exact justice upon the situation of all wrongdoers. So he, he makes his own costume and he, he dubs himself the Crimson Bolt. And, he, <laughs> and he's quite unbalanced. I mean, he basically he deals with people with a wrench beating them bloody with his his uh his his basic slogan is shut up crime um <laughs> you know his real mission is to hopefully find his wife and try and save her from the drug dealers but she's kind of gone on her own way and and in the meantime he picks up a sidekick a comic store employee played by ellen page in a truly unhinged performance from ms page and uh yeah um it's it's a I I'm a pretty big fan of this movie. It's 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 bloody and and twisted and and very dark. Yeah, I think the film got buried a bit just because it came out in such close proximity to Kick-Ass, which right. which navigates some of the same territory. But it you know it does focus in a little bit more on the derangement of somebody who'd want to be a superhero. Yeah, and uh, I don't think Kick-Ass goes nearly as far as Super. Does. Yeah, not not in terms of like the mental breakdown <laughs> part of it. You <laughs> yeah. know, Kick-Ass is yeah. some brutal moments you yes. know in terms of violence and everything like that but in terms of getting inside the character psyche uh super definitely goes a lot further and then suddenly i'm reminded of mystery men but which isn't a dark comedy at all but it you know it is more about ordinary guys being superheroes but more the lighter side of it yeah yeah you know yeah. i just think of all the great william h macy lines in that <laughs> film. <laughs> yeah yeah for sure uh yeah and I, I would guess that uh that that you know super could become like a midnight uh, screening cult movie for for some. I'm not sure if it actually has that following yet, but it could very well. Especially as this, uh, the, I mean, at some point people have got to get tired of superheroes, and it's got to start. You know, the, it, the 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 glow has to wear off at some point, and I think this will be the one that people will remember as a as a great satire on the genre. <laughs> it's just lying there in the shadows, waiting waiting to pounce on people. So you introduced me to the loved one, Stephen. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, this uh, this film is kind of the epitome of, of dark comedy for me, and, and definitely a film that did not find its audience <laughs> when it came out. Um, it's from nineteen sixty five. Yeah, Tony Richardson directed exactly. Tony directed by. Brit, Tony Richardson, who is coming off the success of, of uh, Tom Jones, which was an Oscar winner, uh, uh, based on a book by Evelyn Waugh, or Evelyn Waugh, who, of course, is better known for things like, uh, like um, you know, Brideshead Revisited, and these uh-huh. kind of stately British dramas of people who are to the manor born. Um, so it's, it's, it's got a slightly different setting. It's, uh, we're looking at California... Uh, Los Angeles specifically in, in terms of the, the movie industry and the funeral industry and where they collide. And uh, it, it's interesting. We mentioned Strange Love earlier in the podcast because this was co-written by Terry Southern. Right. Who, uh, you know, co-wrote or was responsible for most of the tone of uh, Dr. Strangelove, at least in the script form. So this is uh, this is what he turned his attention to next. And uh it's uh, it, it again. It kind of goes beyond the pale. If you if you watch it and try to think of it at, in the time that it came out in the sixties, uh, it, it seems like a pretty revolutionary film in a lot of ways. Uh, basically, we get Robert Morse uh, comes to Los Angeles uh, to to seek his fortune. Basically, he's got an uncle who's an artist who also works in the movie industry. John Gilgood and played by John Gilgood, <laughs> Sir John Gilgood, and I don't know if he's a sir at this point, but but. Um, and uh, he's kind of uh, it's got a bit of that uh, that Candide esque uh, adventure where he just kind of goes from one thing to another, trying to find his way in uh, the city of angels. Uh, you know, so it's pretty it's it, it's pretty satiric as far as Hollywood goes. But then it really 
digs its teeth into the the funeral industry. The loved one, the title, of course, is um, uh, funeral business euphemism for the deceased. They don't say that the, the the dead person or the deceased or the one who's passed on or whatever he's called. The, the, they refer to that as the loved one, and and you see echoes of this in Six Feet Under, the HBO uh, series. Um, you know that this was obviously a big influence on that in terms uh-huh. of uh, of the funeral industry. But but this would have all been new to people. I think I don't think I'd seen a film like approach that and, and the gaudy, you know, overdone cemeteries around Los Angeles and. Uh, with their giant statues and, and <laughs> yeah. you know, s- celebratory gardens and things like that, um, and it just gets it just gets more and more brutal as it takes on more and more aspects of of, of like pop culture. Like the the, the, record, the studio's making a James Bond copycat film with a Texas actor who you know trying to learn a British accent. Um, you know, later in the film, it takes on the space program and makes makes fun of that. You know, because of course they they're still trying to get to the moon at that point and uh and that was all the rage so it seems like terry southern was unleashing a lot of rage yeah in the course of this yeah. film and a lot of uh, big names in hollywood at the time you know joined in you got milton burrell james coburn uh liberace in a in a small role uh, roddy mcdowell and even your favorite lionel stander lionel stander shows up yeah he's <laughs> he, he, and he's just kind of disgusting he plays <laughs> like a like a an advice columnist who pretends to be an Eastern mystic, who uh, Anajet Comer, who is the uh, the woman that Robert Morris falls in love with at the cemetery, um, the first female embalmer. Her, yeah, the first female embalmer in the industry. <laughs> um, she, you know, he's just this this crude guy chomping on a cigar and issuing bad advice. Um, Jonathan Winters has got a dual role. Yeah, and and, and Rod Steiger, who kind of seems to be channeling a bit of Peter Sellers as his as playing a, a character named Doctor Joy Boy. Yeah, he's he's like the head of the the embalming and and uh, cosmetic department at the at the cemetery and the and the funeral biz, and but uh, he just becomes wildly obsessed with with um, with Anajet Comer's character, and then uh, who's got a Greek name I can't pronounce? Th- Thanatogenes or something? Th- Thanatogenes. Or something. Yeah, Janelle. Yeah. But I mean, I know that Thanato is is the the god of the death. So there's definitely <laughs> like a like yeah. a little reference there. Uh, the funny funny thing about uh, the, the Robert Morse, who and I would not have placed him, but you told me when we watched it, uh, he's Bert from Mad Men. Yeah, you know, it was the first time I'd seen him in a younger role. And I, yeah, Bert Cooper. Pre- pretty much Bert Cooper is only way I know this guy. But I guess he had a, a long career in Broadway. Yeah, well, he, you know, he he rose to stardom on Broadway and how to succeed in business without really trying. Um, you know, that made him kind of a name on Broadway. So then he starred in the movie version of the film, which didn't include other like like. Unfortunately, did not include Charles Nelson Riley, one of my favorite character actors, who was in the Broadway play but not the film. Um, and then uh, you know that was a hit, so they put him in this film. Uh, and a few years later, he was starring in the Disney comedy The Boatniks, which kind of tells you where his career was heading. Uh, and he went back to the stage, so uh-huh. um, you know, still showing up here and there. But uh, he became more like Bud Court from Harold and Maude, right, you know, sure. the occasional, you know, Bud Court was not going to have a huge <laughs> career in superstardom after Harold and Maude, even though the film was a hit. You know, he goes on within a very short time after Brewster McLeod, uh, the Altman uh, comedy, which I quite love, which is a huge disaster for all, all involved. Uh, you know, again, goes on to these bit parts. and uh, But Robert Morris has this kind of cheery disposition no matter how absurd the situation that he finds himself in that that, that's that kind of keeps you going because i mean i think the loved one could be kind of 
I'm trying to imagine watching it at the time it came out in the 60s. It might be kind of a tough, tough haul for people who are not used to seeing all this kind of uh, extreme behavior shoved yeah. in their face. I mean, it almost parts of it almost feel like a John Waters movie 10 years early. Like the, the scenes with Mr. Joy Boy's uh, mother who just just eats, like just consumes like that scene where they're eating the turkey and she's lying in bed just eating and eating. Yeah. It, it, even today it's kind of repulsive. But, uh, you know, that, that uh, back then it must have just send people shrieking yeah seriously seriously and you know I, I i appreciate that i appreciate the darkness in in this material and that even in the 60s they were willing to go there and i i appreciate that the loved one although it's mostly about the death care industry it really takes some strong swipes at hollywood and it, i don't know if it created the hollywood satire the dark satire but it's certainly part of a of a series of movies and i i definitely think we should mention that it goes right up and includes the recent David Cronenberg film, uh, Mapped to the Stars, which I wasn't a huge fan of, but I still I still respect it as part of this genre. And uh, and certainly the Academy Award winner from this past year is Birdman is is a satire on show business uh, and a dark comedy. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I would say that that movies that I like a lot more than I wasn't actually that big a fan of Birdman. Um, but movies I liked liked a lot more than than Maps to the Stars or Birdman include. Sob and the player, you know Sob from 1981, Blake Edwards, you know, very a bile-filled movie if yes. there ever was one, and the player Robert Altman coming back to Hollywood after a period kind of a fallow period where he was a bit out in the woods, wind up making this this movie that for his career basically relaunched it in as a feature filmmaker. Yeah, well, I mean at the time he was making low-budget films of, of plays uh, yeah. beyond therapy, which is not very good, and then come back to the five and dime. Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, mm-hmm. which is very good. Secret Honor, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then, but then he was making things like Vincent and Theo, which became an art house hit and right. sort of convinced people that maybe he could handle a major motion picture again. And, yeah. you know, of course he knocked it out of the park. And, um, you know, the SOB, I mean, of course, it, at the time, I remember the, all the foo when it came out, but the fact that, you know, Julie Andrews, you know, takes off her top <laughs> in a musical number, which, you know, I, I always wonder the discussion she. I mean, Blake Edwards was her husband, so I try to imagine the discussion that they had there. When he well, the, the, her to do the, it, the meta quality of a movie about a movie producer who's created this movie that has totally failed and complete bomb, and then mm. the convinces the star of the movie to they they recut it in this ongoing conflict between the filmmaker and the studio, and they recut it as more of a pornographic kind of. Uh, you know, dream uh, and, and this, this whole this whole series kind of becomes like a dream sequence. And yeah, and Julie Andrews who plays the lead, who's you know uh, a big star, but certainly has never done any kind of uh, a movie like this where she's required to do this kind of thing, or at least her character isn't. Mm. And then the, it's it's for me the the what I enjoyed about revisiting it was was thinking about those those places where the actress and the character overlapped. You know, maybe Julie Andrews was just like, I am sick of being associated with Mary <laughs> Poppins and I want to do something different, you know? Well, you know, uh, you know, I made that film 15 years ago. <laughs> Why can't we do something different? Sure. Uh, you know, uh, and she certainly has a sense of humor, that's for sure. You'd have to be to be married to Blake Edwards. But, uh, you <laughs> she, know... Yeah, she's definitely game. You know, even sure. at that point, people just thought of Mary Poppins and The Sound of Music. But she'd played more adult parts in Torn Curtain for Alfred Hitchcock and uh, the Tamarind scene seed with Omar Sharif. Right. Rest in peace. Um, so, you know, which was, again, a, a Blake Edwards kind of 
tale of intrigue that kind of flopped at the time. But, uh, you know, they, you know, she had some love scenes, some of the first major ones of her career at that point, and, uh, you know, the, and had barely registered a, a, a whisper of comment about them. So, you know, it, it, it certainly uh, rejuvenated her career in a way, yeah. too, that, that people sort of p- were paying attention to her. Again. And, and Edwards surrounded her with, with great actors of the day. William Holden's final performance, he's quite a sleaze in yes. the film. Uh, you know, Shelley Winters, Larry Hagman, Robert Vaughn, Robert Loggia, Marissa Berenson, who is a name that we don't hear much of too much anymore, but she was quite a star at the time. Yeah, she was and, in Barry Lyndon, I think. Yeah, right? yeah, and uh, a very young Rosanna Arquette. Uh, oh, and of course, Richard Mulligan, who's, <laughs> who's way over the top in this. He's, he's great. Uh, you know, and it, it, it does show uh, the kind of you know the the Hollywood of the day, which which feel, feels very corrupt and 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 just basically, you know, Rome is falling at this yeah. point. <laughs> yeah, the studio system is 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 collapse. I mean, it already sort of collapsed in the the, the kind of Cleopatra, Doctor Doolittle uh, era. Yes, <laughs> and even you know Julie Andrews had starred in this movie called Star, this hugely expensive musical about uh, Gertrude Lawrence that was a tremendous flop and nearly. You know, bankrupted 20th Century Fox, which, if it wasn't for Planet of the Apes, might have completely vanished from the scene uh, at the time. So, um, you know, they're they're all familiar with the, with watching that system kind of cave in on itself. Yeah. And Richard Mulligan is great. Is he's, from what I gather, he is or was uh, kind of a nut bar on that level. Uh, you know, he played Custer as a complete lunatic in Little Big Man. Oh yes. Um, you know, with Dustin Hoffman, and uh, you know, apparently his normal character was pretty pretty out there uh-huh yeah yeah it's 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 a lot of fun i i enjoyed vis- revisiting sob partly because of its 70s sort of excess yeah and partly because it actually has some great people character actors in and there's a lot of laughs a lot of pretty dark laughs the player is also pretty good though it 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 was made in 1992 it still feels sort of 80s mm. aspect of it and some of the more less appealing parts of the 80s though i really enjoyed how tim robbins you know who's just kind of cresting as a star at that point plays this sleazy studio executive who's very paranoid about his job security and he starts getting these threatening postcards in the mail from a disgruntled writer and then he gets into an altercation with a guy Vincent D'Onofrio and he he kills him and then spends the rest of the movie trying to cover up his crime while making time with the writer's ex um you know, played by Greta Skaki, who was who was quite lovely and a great British actor in, in many things. And then all around him are these um, these incredible stars of yesteryear and today. I mean, clearly, Altman looked through his Rolodex and said, <laughs> called everyone he knew and said, would you like to come on for a day's work on my new movie? And everyone said, sure. <laughs> you know, it's it's awesome. I mean, I love seeing seeing Burt Reynolds, Dean Stockwell, Marley Matlin, Susan Sarandon, Bruce Willis, Andy McDowell. Everyone just showing up. Oh, there's a conversation about whether Malcolm McDowell and Andy McDowell are related. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. You know, it's fun. It's it's actually it's certainly uh, there's there's that darkness, but it all feels like we're a little bit more in on the joke. Yeah, definitely. And then having the big finale with Bruce Willis and Julia Roberts, yes. ostensibly the two biggest stars at the time uh in this very goofy action movie sequence yeah. uh you know it's really his his sort of bitter <laughs> tone of about where he feels hollywood is going in terms of its 
you know, use of star power and, and mindless action. So totally, yeah. And I feel like watching it again, you know, the 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 Griffin character, the Tim Robbins character, carries a cell phone around. It was funny watching a movie that's set at that time because the fashions are all very different. But the the cell phone feels a little bit like a fetish, which I guess probably at the time there weren't a lot of people who had mobile phones, or it wasn't as predominant as it no. is today. So, but the the you he uses it a lot and on the phone in the car, et cetera, et cetera. So it's funny how that stuff is played up a little bit. Yeah, more. well, you know, it was a symbol of power for such a long time. Totally. You know, like, I've got a phone in my car. I've got a phone in my briefcase. You know, I, I had this discussion on Saturday, uh, you know, remembering a, a, a friend who, you know, who came from a wealthy family and was the first person any of us knew who had a phone in his car. And that car happened to be a DeLorean. So, <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Yeah, it was kind of a big deal. I bet. I bet it was. Uh, you know, we should, before we wrap up, we, I need to talk about a couple more movies, uh, if you're game. And uh, certainly we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the Coen brothers who, who have that streak of darkness through a lot of their comedies. Certainly Fargo, The Man Who wasn't there. Lady Killers, a remake of the Ealing comedy. My favorite, and if we're going to keep talking about showbiz dark comedies or showbiz satires, Barton Fink is probably my favorite of theirs. Uh, John Turturro is a 1940s playwright, the toast of Broadway, who thinks pretty highly of his skills and his ability to channel tales of the common man (laughs) who gets hired to go out to Hollywood and write a Wallace Beery wrestling picture, which is something pretty formulaic. I actually don't think I've ever seen a Wallace Beery movie, but I guess he was like the biggest star in Hollywood at one time. He was huge in the the 30s and 40s, and I I think he even may have started in the silent films. Um, but you know, he was certainly in a, a number of pre-code films. He made a film called the champ where he plays a washed up boxer There you go. with uh, Jackie Cooper. That was the big heart tugger. And that was in uh, the, like the early thirties. That was the early thirties. Yeah. yeah. So, and that was the, the big nostalgic weepy the year it came out. Um, and he actually did make at least one wrestling picture cause I, I saw it on TCM a while back. Uh, you know, I remember when it came up, I thought, oh my God, a, a, a Wallace Beery wrestling picture. It actually exists. <laughs> awesome. was, was not written by Barton Fink. But, okay. But there you go. And, and, and Barton Fink, the character is based on Clifford Odets, the playwright who was right. wrote Golden Boy and a number of kind of very kind of poetic, again, tales of the common man kind of things. Um, and, you know, and he did get brought out to Hollywood and he kind of wrote these films that, you know, I'm sure most of his prose got transformed by somebody else further down the line. You know, he tried to write, like, whole scripts in blank verse and that kind of uh-huh. thing. And the studios kind of clamped down on, on that kind of expression, I guess. Um, and, uh, yeah, Barton Fink is, is definitely a film that uh, I didn't get the first time around. It, mm-hmm. took, it took a second viewing uh, years later on video to kind of, you know, uh, you know get the, what happens with when his... The, with the explosion of the id, as it were, yes. at the end of the film. I'll was, show you the life of the mind. Exactly. Yeah, it really, <laughs> really goes all balls to the wall by the end of it. Yes. Um, and uh, it, it's certainly a film I like more in retrospect than I did when I first saw it. And uh, it's Totoro is so great in this film. And it's, you know, it's, it's a shame you, he's really not considered a leading actor these days because he's 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 just so full of verve in this film and yes. the, the energy of, of him and, and everything everyone that he bounces off of is so incredible yeah and he and, and John Goodman probably have the key relationship in yeah. the film and it's it's wonderful to to see how he kind of considers himself this intellect and has this this relationship with this guy who lives next door to him at the hotel and this guy is kind of this you know nice good well good hearted sh- sort of schmo uh, who is who's exactly the kind of character that he's writing about but they can't quite communicate Kate and you, you you're witness to these really awkward conversations. It's a it's a 
deeply brilliant film, I think, and in in some ways, uh, it just it 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 rewards uh, multiple viewings. I think as you as you mentioned it, it John Mahoney as the William Faulkner esque southern writer trapped in hollywood uh, and his his secretary and his his lover audrey played by the always awesome judy davis you know the seeing these characters again and spending a little time with them and totally tony shaloub has a wonderful two or three scene cameo uh these are and even steve buscemi is chet the bellhop <laughs> this is these are great great characters and and there's something about the movie that uh that it's still it it when you see it again and again, the the darkness of it also really, well, there's there's there, it's mysteries sort of unpeel the way that the wallpaper comes down, and uh, I think I think uh, yeah, it's a real it's a real gift of a movie, and 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 the Coens are just they're just brilliant guys, you know. Some people call them cold, uh, but I I never get tired of watching their movies. No, we I mean we could certainly do a whole show on the Coen brothers yeah, for sure. Yeah, but maybe the, we the, Bart Barton Fink is a film that generally does get the the do that it yeah. deserves and, and uh, certainly a good one to insert into this one but you know and and it would be great to see them do another kind of wild comedy I don't think we've seen anything like that since Burn After Reading so yeah um, there's one called Hail Caesar Coming but I don't know that whether it's based on the title I figure it may be a comedy yeah but... I, th- I think it's going to be more more along those lines yeah um, so before we we close off I really just want to give a shout out to Death to Smoochie which was absolutely bombed when it came yeah. out and the critics just they they totally smashed it but uh i love the movie it's from danny devito who has done a lot of dark comedies in his years including as a director and as an actor he starred in them he he directed war of the roses which was maybe the most bleak movie about marriage ever uh <laughs> next to husbands and wives i yeah. would say um and uh, it's about uh, Death to Smoochie is stars Robin Williams as Rainbow Randolph. He's a childhood uh, TV performer who's busted taking payola and loses his jobs. Turned out he's kind of a psychopath and he starts to seek revenge on his replacement, played by Edward Norton, who's introduced as the most saccharine TV kids host ever, Sheldon Mopes, and his character is Smoochie the Rhino. And Sheldon winds up actually being pretty likable. As the film goes on, it's it's kind of amazing that he turns he 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 starts to appeal to us, and it helps that he's acting a lot opposite the amazing Catherine Keener, who's a tough as nails TV yes. executive, and she gets a lot of the best lines. When when she shows up drunk at Sheldon's apartment and wants to apologize for being so mean to him, she says, "Listen, sincerity is an easy disguise in this business. It's hard to know who's on the level." <laughs> it's like this noirish kind of backstory to the whole industry of of children's entertainment uh and and later later when she discovers that smoochie was set up by randolph to attend a nazi rally to cheers of heil schmoochie schmoochie um she says i got swept up in the frenzy of anti-smoochieism <laughs> there's a lot of great stuff in here and uh and it's just it's a real pleasure pleasure to see it again now i i, I don't think all of it works i think harvey fierstein is a charity gangster isn't quite working out and and i would say that that watching robin williams try and immolate immolate himself maybe is a, a little awkward in hindsight maybe is that too soon to talk about no uh, i don't think so about that in a in, no. a, in a podcast about about I, dark humor i think one of the biggest saboteurs of the movie was john stewart who uh you know 
constantly made fun of it uh, (laughs) on the Daily Show for years and years afterwards. Uh, And, uh, you know, but he always, I mean, he he makes fun of his whole sort of film career such as it is. Yeah, he plays Um, just a small part with a terrible uh, haircut. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I guess he plays an an executive. um, And, uh, you know, he was always deriding it uh, pretty much from the (laughs) get-go, from right after it came out. I I think at the time that it came out, people thought maybe that, that, that Smoochie... Was a, it was a little too on the nose takedown of Barney the dinosaur, right? Um, you know, and I'm guessing, I mean, and everybody knows that Barney needed to be taken down a few notches because we were so sick of that friggin' uh, lizard. But uh, you know, just even being reminded of him maybe was too painful for a lot of people. <laughs> so, uh, so that that was probably something that worked against the film in the long run. But uh, it, it it is interesting, you know, the way it tackles. You know, our idea of what's appropriate for children and, and uh, you know, how that kind of media can just infiltrate our brains. Yeah, uh, and, absolutely. And, and Robin Williams, I think, is is, is fabulous in this film. He, uh, you know, he, he gets that kind of dark side of things. I mean, he obviously got that from his idol, Jonathan Winters. Sure. And when he, when he goes there, uh, the film's like One Hour Photo, for example, I mean, which is more really more of a straight-up drama. But, you know, he can definitely tap into that dark side without... Uh, delving so much into the, the tics and the mannerisms that uh, mark a lot of his roles. Uh, an early film of his, uh, The Survivors, actually. Oh, is yeah. One can, Walter uh, Matthau. Walter, yeah, I think I think Michael Winner directed it. But, uh, yeah, he and Walter Matthau go on a survivalist course. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's uh, you know, and, and I think uh, Jerry Reed is like an assassin who's trying to take them Right. Uh, great comedy, one that's completely overlooked these days. I think it was like only his second or third movie. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, and the world according to Garp is a pretty bleak comedy. Oh, definitely, yeah. yeah that could fit in this in this story as well. You know, it's it's funny. There's there's so many films uh, where Robin Williams' character is, is a little downbeat or disturbed or troubled um, that you know match the sort of manic and upbeat kind of Mrs. Doubtfire kind of movies. Yeah, it's funny how he would make a movie like Patch Adams, and then he would make a movie like Death to Smoochie, and it's <laughs> funny because it seems like he's directly pointing at the kind of other soft, fluffy roles that he would do <laughs> in a role like this and just completely undermining them in, in a way that I, I, you know, it speaks to the duality of who that guy was in a, in a brilliant way. Yeah, definitely. Well, <laughs> duality, bipolar, whatever you want to call yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I figure that, you know, if Death to Smoochie, if Bad Santa can be a cult classic that people appreciate, then there's no reason that Death to Smoochie can't be. I, I feel like like I, I'm going to, you know, go out there and, and start a campaign to support this movie and have it reconsidered because, uh, you know, even though Roger Ebert says, and I want to quote him here because it was, it was a hilarious review, in all the annals of the movies, few films have been this odd, inexplicable, and unpleasant. <laughs> I mean, that's something, he probably didn't mean that to be a compliment, but that seems to me to be kind of a compliment. Well, it, it's, a, it's a sour pill to swallow, but it's also a very funny one. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. You can contact us on Twitter at Lends Me Your Ears, all one word, or search for Lends Me Your Ears on Facebook. We're on Stitcher, and you can rate and review us on iTunes, and if you do, we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. Our email is LendsMeYourEarsPodcast at gmail.com. I'm Karsten Knox, and my Twitter is at Karsten Knox. And I'm Stephen Cook, and my Twitter is at CH underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. Well, that's it for our look at darker comedies. Let's hope that you've learned to laugh at the bleaker side of life. And we'll see you again on Lends Me Your Ears.
Lensmere Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. Lensmere Ears is engineered by Luke Badio and is produced by Dave Anderson and Jason Michael McIsaac. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music, tour dates, and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Discover more great shows on the Village Soundcast Network by going to villagesoundcast.com. We can also be found on Twitter at VSoundcast and on Facebook by searching the Village Soundcast Network. Rate and review us on iTunes and you'll get a shout-out on an upcoming show. Send feedback to LendsMeYourEarsPodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.